Father, we just thank you for the privilege of looking at your word together today. I pray that you will anoint my lips, Lord, that you will help me to speak clearly. And I pray, Lord, that you will bring your word forth as you desire to each of those who are listening. Father, we just thank you for the amazing privilege and freedom that we have as Australian Christians, Lord, to worship you openly. And we thank you for that. Amen. So our theme this year, we're looking at incarnating Christ. We want to focus on the incarnation of Christ, Christ being formed within us so that those around us can look at us and can see Jesus in our lives. And the series we're working on at the moment is Connecting Power. Mark has uh, talked to us or shared with us about friendship with God, connecting with God, with God as our friend. And last week we looked at forgiveness, the issue of forgiveness. So this week we're looking at faithfulness versus deceit. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Faithfulness is often used actually in the Bible for truthfulness. We're looking at truthfulness versus deceit. And truth is a very central part of the being of God, of God's character. Jesus actually defined himself and he said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And being the truth is a really important part of who God is. Jesus made a really interesting comment about, about the devil, about Satan. Because on the one hand, you've got God who is the truth and you've got Satan who is a liar. And Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's the darkness and light of the kingdoms. We either are with God and God is truth and we learn how to walk with God in his truth or we belong to the devil who is the father of lies. So it's very serious business. In Isaiah, God actually spoke to the leaders of his people and he brought them a word and he said, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. So God is not pleased with these people. And he said to them, you boast, we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So God's zeroing right in on the problem. They are not hiding in the living God. They're hiding in their lies and their refuge and their deceit. And God says, uh, Isaiah the prophet says for God, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Now, we all know who the prophet was talking about, don't we? Because in the New Testament, again and again, Jesus is referred to as the precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in Jesus will never be dismayed. And then the prophet says, what's going to happen to their refuge? What's going to happen to the lie? And he says, hail will sweep your refuge away. And water will overflow your hiding place. So what God does, ultimately God is going to bring lies to an end. And he's going to, his truth will rule. This is a scripture that is a favourite with my friend Shandell when she's um, street preaching. What's the ultimate end of liars? And it's all liars will find their place in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. So... Being in the, those with those who lie is a 
terrible end and a great tragedy in the end that they have. And God calls us to be men and women of truth and to walk away from the lie in which we used to live and to walk in his truth. And so God actually looks for truth in his friends. God is looking for this truth. And Jeremiah said that. And God also speaks of desiring, David realised this, you desire truth in the inner being. God's truth is to be formed in us. God's truth is to be within us. It's, that's the core out of everything else that happens. The Bible says we are to speak the truth in love and we are to obey the truth is a command that's made quite regularly in the New Testament. But there's some real challenges in that. Speak the truth in love. Now, truth, speaking the truth, we often think of getting the two before and taking it to someone's head. But there's this balance, truth and love. God is truth and God is love. There's a balance. There's a balance. God holds these things in a balance. And there's a challenge for us, speaking the truth, but do we do it out of love? Do we do it out of concern for the other person, for a sense of we care about their well-being? And then also, speak the truth. I listen to men and women talk. And I, I hear people say different things and I think to myself, well, that's very interesting, but one person will say this thing and one person will say that thing. And you, we agree on the essentials of Christianity, otherwise we're not Christians. But in the Bible, there are many things that God actually leaves unanswered. God doesn't tell us everything about himself in his book. There are things the Bible actually speaks about now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Then we shall know, even as we are known. And there's a sense in which God has more to unfold to us. And so not one of us knows all the truth. And the challenge for us, are we really speaking the truth or are we just speaking our opinion? Sorry. Okay. I don't want to go there yet. So there is a, there's a serious challenge here. What are we actually speaking? Okay. When I came to Christ, I came from a background. I'd been very abused. I was very frightened. I was 17 years old. I'd actually been very isolated from other people. And I gave my life, I knelt down and I gave my life to God. I didn't know much at all about God. And I figured out, you know, this God is so wonderful. I need to know what he's like. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to get a Bible because the Bible tells me about God. And I thought, I want the Bible that is closest to the language that Jesus spoke. I mean, I would go for authenticity, which was not a good move. So I went and I bought the King James Version of the Bible. Now that, <laughs> it's 400 years old. It's what's called a literal translation. It takes the sentences and the sentence structure from the original Hebrew and Greek and it translates it across into English. So you get this stilted sort of language. So I started reading this and I didn't do well at all with this. I'm reading it, I'm thinking, I don't like this. I don't like these people. I'm reading about Jesus and he's a first century Jew and he's saying these things and I'm thinking, I don't even understand what he's talking about. I don't like it. I don't like this. And I was thinking... What's my problem? Because I had a big problem because I was thinking, if Jesus is representing God and I can't get a handle on what Jesus is saying, how can I learn about God? And I must learn about God. 
It took me a while to realize, but there were a few things that were issues for me. One thing was the New Testament was written 1900 years ago. That's in terms of time and culture, that is a really, really, really long time ago. And I had no experience of life, I had no experience of different cultures. And then Jesus, he came as a first century Jew and he ministered mostly to Jewish people. And Jewish people, they're argumentative, they like to debate, they like to get in there and lay it out on the table. And I was this scared little girl, and the last thing I wanted with anyone was an argument. And I couldn't get my head around this at all. So, in hindsight, I would have been better off with what's called a free translation of the Bible, where the language is accommodated to today's language and it sounds much more, it's okay, it sounds much more like the language we use today. And in actual fact, some of the issues and ideas are translated across accurately or inaccurately into more modern day English. I would have been better with that because I would have had some opportunity as I studied the Word of God to, to actually know what I was reading. But it was very different. And so we faced these issues, or I faced this issue. It, God's Word contains His truth. And this truth is something we are to, it's to come into our heart, and we are to incarnate this truth and show people what Jesus is like. So how do we bridge the gap? There's thousands of years shouldn't have brought that. There are thousands of years be between us and the first century Jewish culture and the Old Testament, and there's this different culture. How do we bridge that gap? How do we really know what God is saying to us? Now, obviously, some things, they're relevant. Some things apply to all cultures, like love your neighbor as yourself. Really, the only issue there is, are you going to do it? We all know what love means. Well, Actually, for years, I had a major problem with that one because the background that I came from, I didn't know what love was. I didn't know what it looked like. I think, love, love, what's love? You know, that's not what I grew up with. It's not what I've experienced. I used to say, how can I love? How can I give away what I haven't got? And I, I couldn't quite figure these things out. And at one stage in my life, I actually decided, I approached a Christian family who took people in and I said, I would like to live with you for a time. Because I, what I wanted to do, I wanted to see what does Christianity look like as it's worked out? You know, what does love do? What does it say? What does, what does God do? What does it look like? Show me what it looks like. So I moved in with these people and I know they love God and I know they loved each other. But they were kind of yellers and screamers. You know, like every day they'd be, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> I sort of thought, okay, where I've come from, I know about yellers and screamers. I want you to teach me what it's like to live as a Christian. So I said to God, can we just do a swap here? I, I want a family that's going to show me this. And so I ended up with a second family. They were a Dutch family. And the Dutch people, I have a Dutch friend here, the Dutch people are very, they're quite dogmatic. You know, they're, they're, they know what their opinion is and that's their opinion and that's the way it is. And this couple were like that. But the amazing thing was they were able to do that. I never heard them raise their voices to each other. I, they were able to express their opinion and they were able to hear each other. And I learned a lot from living with those people. Just absolutely Amazing. So some 
Some concept, most of the concepts in the Bible, it's, it's clear. We know what we have to do or we can find out what to do. But now there's some concepts that actually relate to biblical culture and they're not for us today. For example, in the New Testament, you read about slavery. Now, slavery was in place in the New Testament time and any good pastor or leader or teacher had to address for his people the issue of if you're the servant, how do you live? How do you treat your master? Or if you're the master, how do you treat your servant? So the Bible had to address those issues, and it did address those issues. But what do we do with that today? Do we go and get ourselves a slave because the Bible talks about slavery? Or do we look at it and we say, okay, that was relevant in the first um, century. It could have something to teach us, but we, we let it slip. I have actually a favourite from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. And it says, when you build a new house, build a parapet on the roof. A parapet. I quite like that. I thought, what's a parapet? And in the Old Testament, their, their roofs were flat and they built this protective railing around the roof. And that was so that if you were on the roof or your friends were on the roof, you wouldn't fall off. Now, when I talk to my friends today and we've built a house, I don't know of anyone, in our culture at least, who's built a parapet on their roof. But there was a command, build the parapet. Build the parapet. Why did we let it slide? Because culturally, it's not relevant to us today. But three verses before that, three verses before that was another scripture. And this, for many years, has got the church tied up in knots. And it says, a woman... Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, what does that mean? I kind of, somewhere, somewhere along the life of the church, we somehow or other came up with the idea that men's clothing is trousers and women's clothing is dresses. And I personally think there must have been a bunch of little old English men and ladies years ago in an English village who'd never encountered other cultures and they dreamed this up. That's what it is. Dresses for the ladies and trousers for the men. But it's hopelessly impractical. I'm a bushwalker. And when you go out bushwalking, trees fall down and they always fall down in the most exposed place, like over a cliff or something. And when you're walking, you don't turn back because there's a tree there. You have to find your way through that tree without falling over the cliff. And there's wait a while, and it's waiting to get you, you know, grab at your clothes. And there's all these broken twigs and branches, regular occurrence. Now, believe you me, if you wear a dress in a situation like that, it's not a good thing because you're going to get hung up on the branch, you're probably going to dangle over the edge, the dress will rip, and that's, you know, bye. So you don't wear a dress functionally. There's a lot to be said for women wearing trousers or wearing shorts, functionally. And then what about the desert dwellers? I've read about some of the men in the desert, and they wear long robes and these head thingies. Now, why do they do that? Why do they do it? That sounds a bit to me like women's clothing. But they're in a culture 
They need protection from the sun, the sand, the sandstorms, blowing wind in their mouths and their eyes and their faces. They need something they can pull across to protect themselves. They need something that helps with temperature control. And the loose clothing is much more suitable for that. So what would happen if they got converted and we said, right, you must wear trousers, long sleeve shirts and a belt. I, I think they'd probably perish within a week because it's a functional thing. I'm not going to try and attempt to interpret that particular scripture for you today. If you wanted to interpret it, you check it out for yourself. But I do know that in two months' time, we're actually going to um, fellowship for six weeks in the church of the Romanian people. Now, the Romanian people, they wear dresses and head covering and trousers. And I thought to myself, what will we do when we go there? Well, we kind of look at them and think, yeah, look, I've got a freedom that you haven't got. Well, you're not really up to date and relevant. No, we know we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to rejoice in the things we have in common, which is our love for God and their amazing generosity and their love for us and our love for them. We're going to rejoice in the things we have in common and the, the cultural issues or the issues we don't see eye to eye on, we're not going to focus on that because... God tells us to walk in love for one another. So the Bible was actually written to particular people in particular situations. And there's this interweaving of God's eternal truths and cultural issues. And how do we separate God's eternal truths from the culture back then? How do we work out what is God saying to us today? What does God want of us? And that's a really important question. You see... Excuse me. I'm a Roma. I have to be able to move. God actually, he transcends culture. God is bigger than one culture. And you and I, we have a way of looking at things the way we were raised a certain way. We live in a certain culture. We think in a certain culture. I was talking to Liz and Claudia and James when they came back from Switzerland. And one of the things they said that interested me was, we saw people doing things differently over there and it was okay to be different and it was refreshing. And I thought, yeah, we, we, we almost tend to have blinkers on. This is how it ought to be done. But God is actually, he transcends culture and you and I live in a multicultural society. So if we're going to walk around with our little blinkers on, it's going to be really hard for us to be relevant it's going to be hard for us to cross cultures like God does. And you see, God is relevant. In the first century when Jesus came to earth, he was like a first century Jew in his dress, his appearance, certainly not in the things he said. He challenged them on all the issues. But I was thinking, if Jesus came to earth today, what would he look like? If he was here today in our culture, wanting to reach the men and women that we're in touch with, what would he look like? And I thought... He'd look like Heike because he lives in Heike's heart. He'd look like Brother Noel here because he lives in Brother Noel's heart. He'd look like Len here because he lives in Len's heart. So God wants us to be relevant and to bring him, to show him forth to the people that we're meeting with day by day. That's what God wants. We are to be relevant in the culture we live in and we live amongst many cultures. 
So if we are going to be wise and going to be moving with God, we want to be able to bridge the cultures. We don't, we don't want these parameters around our lives to be so tight that we can't hear and understand someone who's different. So I was thinking, how do we interact with the Bible? How do we interact with the Bible to hear what God is saying to us today? What are the eternal truths? What are the things that God wants to say to the people that you and I meet every day? And I looked at, I looked at some of these things, and how do we? And really, I'm saying, how do we handle the Word of God to hear what it's saying to us today? And one of the things we need to do, we look at context. We said, what was God saying at the moment, at the time when it was written? What was happening back then? What was it like for the people back then? What, what were the people back then hearing? And we need to get the big picture in Scripture. We, we need to look at the whole story. So if you're doing Bible study, don't just look at a little tipsy bit. Stretch it out. If you're in the, in the New Testament or something, look at the whole paragraph. Or if you're doing a parable, look at the whole parable. If you're looking at a story, look at the whole story. And then you've got a better idea of tracing God's thought through that and finding out what is God saying. And as you find out what God is saying, what his eternal truth is, then you're better equipped to handle the word of God. Mark was actually talking last week. I heard Mark say he runs like a video in his head. So he's picturing what's going on as he reads a story. So what's Mark doing? He's getting, he's getting the big picture. He's getting the big picture. He's getting a feel for what's happening here. What is God saying here? What's happening for the individual people in, in the narrative? And as you do that, as you can see it happening, you start, ah, this is what God is saying. This is what God is after. And that's what we want. So we've got to let the Bible tells us, tell us Sorry, I want to flick it forward. No, back. We want to let the Bible tell us what the Bible means. And one of the things that we discover is that we all actually interpret the Bible. We, we all come to the Bible with certain understanding and we interpret the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed, but you might be talking to someone who's a black and white, fairly literal sort of person. And he comes to the Bible. He or she comes to the Bible, this is what the Bible says. You ever, you ever watch this in operation? This is what the Bible says. And then you talk to somebody else and they say, no, 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 no. That's cultural. You've got to leave it back in the first century. And then you go talk to somebody else and they're saying something like, you compare scripture with scripture. So you get this scripture, this scripture, this scripture. And that's how you get the big picture of what God is saying. So how do we actually work out who's right? Who's right? What, what, who's right in the way they're handling Scripture? I think, I don't want you to answer me, and I don't have an answer for that. I'd like to say, who knows? But I've got a challenge for you today. If you want to know how to handle Scripture, start to really study it yourself. You don't just want to rely on what somebody else says. You want to get in there, and you want to Get a hold of the scripture and some of you young people, start to wrestle with the scriptures yourself. Start to study it. It's a load of fun to actually really start getting into the Bible and getting into the culture and trying to understand what God is saying. And as you do that, you grow in God. And what happens is you don't have to listen so much to other people's opinion on non-essential issues, but you start to get your own conviction about what God is saying. 
And that's how we go, grow to be men and women of faith and men and women who can declare the truth of God and who know what it is to have God incarnate in us because we start to learn how to correctly handle, how do we correctly handle God's word, his truth. And get into it yourself. Don't just listen to somebody else. And will we all agree on how to interpret the Bible? Do, do, do men and women agree on what stays... Okay, I won't bring them up again. Sorry about that. Will, will we all agree on what issues stay in the first um, century and what comes across to today? And the fact is, of course we won't. As people, we agree on the essential issues to do with our faith, but there's lots of things that we don't agree on. So I had to ask the question today, how do we handle, if we're going to think differently on some issues, how do we actually handle that difference? How do we do that? God has to have a way for us to handle it. One of the things the Bible says in Romans is every man or every woman should be convinced in their own mind. So you need to study the Bible and come to your own conviction. You've got to know what you think. You don't want to walk around for the rest of your life relying on somebody's opinion. Find out for yourself what the Bible says. Acts 17 and 11 is a beautiful scripture. It's talking about the Bereans and how they were of noble character because they listened to Paul and Paul was bringing them God's truth for the day. So did they just accept what Paul said? They liked it, but did they just accept it? And the scriptures say what they did was they went home and they got their Bibles out and they searched the scriptures. Is this true what Paul is saying? Is this true? Is this true? Is what I am saying today true? You want to find out? Go and search the scriptures. Search it out for yourself. See what the Bible says. It says in Romans, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So when we're mixing with other people, we're not actually looking to argy-bargy about, you know, we've got this different opinion over here and we've got this different opinion over here. What we're looking to do is to meet as God's people. And it says in peace, so we want peace between us. We don't want argumentativeness. We don't want quarrelling and fighting over words. But we want to build each other up. Mutual edification, we build each other up. We build each other's lives up. And that's our prime concern. Not, you know, I've got a different opinion to you, but how can I build my brother or my sister up? I wanted to look very quickly today at a story of David and Bathsheba. Now, David and Bathsheba, we all know, or most of us would know, this is a narrative in the Bible about David when he was committing adultery with Bathsheba. And I was actually imagining a scenario. You know, if you want to look at the scriptures and really take them out of context, you could say something like, David was a man after God's own heart and he committed adultery so I can do it too. Who thinks that would be handling the scriptures correctly? Good on you. Who thinks that I just did a terrible thing to the Word of God? <laughs> I got it wrong, didn't I? But it's really important to handle the Scriptures correctly. So when we look at this issue of the adultery with, with David and Bathsheba, we want to get the whole picture because we want to find out what is God actually saying? What is it? And one of the things we know, even before we start the story, if we compare Scripture with Scripture... We go to Exodus 20, verse 14. God makes a very clear statement about adultery. You know what the statement is? 
you, yeah, you shall not commit adultery. It's not going to happen. So as soon as, you can, as soon as we come to the story of David and Bathsheba, we've probably got some idea of where this is going to go because we know God's view on the matter. And the situation was David was obviously starting to you know, fool himself a bit. He's starting that something was going wrong in his thinking because the Bible says at a time when kings went out to war, David's just you know, sitting at home. He sent somebody else out to fight the battle. He should have been out there fighting. And then he gets up and he sees this beautiful woman so he takes her, um, they have sexual intercourse together, she gets pregnant, and then David's thinking, okay, I'd better get the husband to take responsibility for this, and he couldn't fool Uriah into doing it. Uriah was an honourable man and he was fighting and that was it. He wasn't going to go home and be with his wife. And so David says, okay, well, I do. And he basically, he basically killed Uriah. He sent Uriah out to the hottest part of the battle and arranged for him. He was going to be left there and, and died. And Uriah was killed in battle. And David's, David just carries on. I mean, he must have really been lying to himself. And not only that, he wasn't listening to God. He had his fingers in his ears. He'd been doing what he wanted to do and he's getting away with it. But the Bible says God was grieved with what David had done. God was grieved and God thought, okay, David is not listening to me, so I'm going to send someone else. And he sent Nathan the prophet and Nathan told the story and David's still not recognising himself in the story. Yeah, okay. And David actually got really angry at the story that Nathan told. He's starting to get really riled up about it. I won't take the time to tell you the story today, but He's getting really rolled up and he says to Nathan, yeah, the man who did this thing, the man who did this thing. It was actually talking about one man had one little lamb and a rich man had lots of sheep and lots of animals. And the rich man went and took the lamb from the poor man who only had one. And David's getting really angry. He said, that man's got to die. Yeah, he's got to die. And then Nathan turned around and he said to him, it's you, it's you, David. It's you, you're the man. And all of a sudden, David gets it. He'd been fooling himself for all that time, and he suddenly got it. He got it. And when we look at the... See, what we're doing there, when it's not the end of it, so we'll keep going here. So what happened then? And actually, it is Psalm 51 that really tells us the end of this story. So see what we've done? We've gone to the scripture, and we're looking at the whole story. We haven't picked out one little bit. We've looked at the whole story. And Psalm 51 actually really tells us the end of this story. It, it happened that Prophet Nathan had come, come to David and then David had committed adultery. So this is after this. This is after God has really got David's attention. And David prays and he says, Has mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And listen to what David says, for I know my transgressions. So David stopped lying to himself and he's telling the truth. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And he goes on to say, surely you desire truth. 
in the inner parts. So David learnt the lesson. God wants truth in our heart. It's in our heart that's the wellspring of all these things. And he said to God, you teach me wisdom in the inner place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And so David learnt the lesson that God wanted him to learn. And God, David knew that it was what was in his heart. God wants truth in our heart. And if we are to walk with God, we can't tell each other lies. We can't lie to ourselves. What we've got to do is meet with God in truth. And God puts his truth in our heart. And then what we show forth to other people is the truth of God. And that's truth and it's held in balance with love. You see, God transcends culture. And you and I live in a multicultural society. And that gives us some challenges that are unique. To be able to be and to express God's truth across cultures. We don't want to exclude people who see things differently or have experienced life differently. We want to be able to hold on to the essential truths of God and to know what they are and to be able to meet with people of many cultures. And bringing the culture of heaven, that's the culture that really counts. What is God's culture? What does God, the culture of heaven, look like? And to bring that culture to earth. And I, was, I always find myself deeply moved by something Paul said. And Paul was saying he was a free man and he was free, but he chose to be a slave. And he talked about why he did that. He said, oh, I, I choose to be a Jew to the Jewish people. And he, he's talking about the fact that he said, I, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. And that is what God is looking for us today. He's looking for us to be able to hold on to the essential truths of our faith and to know what they are. What are the essential truths that we all agree on? And then to be able to lay things down. And quite often, um, quite often laying things down means that we don't rush to speak. One of the scriptures in Romans there uh, spoke about the fact that we don't have to rush to speak. There are some things that we can keep in our heart between ourselves and God and we don't have to just lay it out on the table for the sake of laying it out on the table. What we bring to the party is the essential truths of God that's in our heart and a willingness to work together as part of God's body and to be God's witness in a multicultural society. And God calls us to that. Okay, Father, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for the challenges of your word. We thank you, Father God, that you want us to be men and women in whom your truth resides by your son Jesus. And you want us to show your truth forth. And we pray, Lord, that you will lead us on in our journey with you. Father, that you will give us a love and a hunger for your word. Father, I pray that you're going to kindle in the heart of folks here today a desire to study your word and to find out for themselves what you are, st- what you are saying. To find out for themselves, Lord, what their convictions ought to be. Father, you want us to be men and women of strength who can stand and who can declare the things that are important and to know, Lord, what is important and what is something that we can let slide and keep in our heart between you and ourselves. And Father, I just pray for your wisdom. I pray for your understanding. Pray, Father God, that you'll take your word and apply it to our hearts. Amen.